0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. Hi, I'm Claire Testoni, and I host a podcast called Singing Bones. Singing Bones is a podcast that looks at the origin of fairy tales, the bare bones of stories. Follow your favorite tales from their beginnings, discover new tales you've never heard, and rediscover stories you thought you knew. Looking at history, literature and popular culture, we look at fairy tales in a whole new way. A way that is not for children, and certainly not Disney. You can find us on iTunes or at singingbonespodcast.com.
2: Welcome to the Lesser Bonapartes, the history podcast that is exploring history and your world.
0: I am Glenn, and with me as always is Kristaps. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the eastern border. Um, no, 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 you didn't. You didn't uh, mishear <laughs> mis- that. This is a uh, shared show, actually. As some of you might know, I got my hands on some very interesting Soviet textbooks about history and everything. And you know what? It is September... And by the time you're listening to this, uh, you know that I, I have already been married. So I thought, you know, it's September, let's, let's look at education and the Soviet data. And while I was reading those books, I was thinking, oh yeah, it's going to be so great on the eastern border. But I'm reading this, and I'm looking at more stories from this, and I understand that, you know what? This is just so hilarious that it would make a perfect Lesser Bonaparte episode as well. And then I spent some time wondering, eastern border, Lesser Bonaparte, eastern border, Lesser Bonaparte. And then, then it struck me. Both. So yeah, we'll we'll try to take a look at, and Glen Glen here will will ask some important questions, which I'll try to answer. As um, yeah, Glenn, I I hope you will make sure that uh, you know m- make sure that what I'm saying is interesting, because I I don't know what you Americans might know about the the craziness that is. Soviet schools and universities and other things that's going on there.
2: Uh, well, you know, we don't really get a whole lot of information. Like, even when I was growing up as a kid, there wasn't, like, a whole lot. And I guess, uh, as kind of preface this whole episode, you know, we're taking it a little easy this couple of weeks. Just the weeks where Kristaps is getting married and everything. It's a big change. We're just kicking back and having fun. So we're really turning the chairs backwards on this point, and we're just going to wrap. We're going to wrap about Soviet history for a while and really get on your level, the kids and tell you all about that. And when I was a kid, I grew up during kind of the late days of the cold war in the eighties. And all, all we really heard about from the Soviet union was, you know, like the general things like, Oh, they wait in line for six hours for one pair of Levi's Uh, nuclear war is going to destroy us all Rocky four kind of stuff, you know? And, um, there wasn't really a whole lot of the nuance in like the history and what really fascinates me is i never you never really heard what say like the soviet history what what you were learning in the soviet union when when or what you thought about america or what even the story of america was being told at the time i'm sure there was a lot of you know decadent capitalism type stuff but i don't know what exactly you thought of your own history. We never got any of that in America, in America. So I I guess there's just a lot of ignorance. I think that's why your, your show, the Eastern border uh, has caught on so much is that people are listening to it and going, huh. Okay. Because we never saw it from that point of view. And especially anybody growing up in the Soviet union during, you know, the high point and what, what, um, what year exactly are these books from? Are they from the
0: fifties or the sixties? Actually, they're from various ages. Here's one, which is uh, USSR History Christomethe, which is from 77. Then I have Riga at the Age of Socialism, which is from... Yeah, it's also from 70s. Then I have a university textbook from 86, which is the beginning of Perestroika. Then I have another one from the 50s. Yeah. I, I, sadly I don't have anything from the 60s on me right now, but yeah, 50s, 70s, and 80s, and there are vast differences between the books too, because the one written in 50 is still, you know, Stalin's era, and then we can switch on to stagnation, and then there's, then there's Glasnost, and it's like living in separate worlds, even in Soviet textbooks. The truth, the truth about what was going on in the world and the Soviet Union had, the, let's just say, it shifts around really, really fast, and it's, it's it's a bit crazy, and you now just to, just to start this off about America, you'll be surprised because the, the book in, in the fifties is um, very very nasty and mean about the imperialistic Americans, uh, while that one in the Glass chair, it's like yeah you know we can um, we we can live together with them they're 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 bad and they're capitalists but what we seek peace and everything is nice while the one in the fifties actively says that no 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 you're all evil and we should it's only a matter of time until we crush you. Also, some sort of weird changes going on there. So, what, what, what age of student would this
2: be taught to? Like,
0: what? Okay, what, I what have, age I group? have uh, three books for high school from history and one university uh-huh. book that "Riga Age of Socialism" is university level book because that's that's specifically that's economics and and about how Riga. Basically, this one is advanced history because that's specifically looking at. The social and political status of Riga, 1917 to 1975, and and that's that's kind of university level. But everything else is is high school level books there that I that I have acquired. And those are those are just amazing. But um, like I I have some troubles with uh, starting somewhere because uh, you know when you cover four history books plus a lot of stories because uh, as usual I went around and. My, my my normal thing, hey, I need to do something about Soviet history and about schools, better call up my dad and, and his friends and all other people so I have some stories and jokes from, from personal experience as well, not just these factual history books. But yeah, Glenn, I don't know where to start. Where Where should I start? Give me a hint. I guess the most logical place to start would be
2: the October Revolution um, and like um, how that is told vis-a-vis like say what was going on in World War One, and how the books say in the 1950s would have um, viewed um, kind of the final days of the Tsar. Do they look back on that nostalgically? Do they go like, oh, you know, there's the Tsar was so great. The Romanov dynasty was so great. And then they went away. Or is it like, you know, the decadent? Monarchy fell, and this, you know the Soviet revolution was much better. like how do they view the I guess you could say the imperial Czarist days
0: as opposed to say the the communist days? Oh, it was dreadful, evil, and very very oppressive and that, that's constant all the time. Uh, czar uh, was never, never, ever good now strangely enough, um, oh. I, I was looking through this, and um, weirdly enough, uh, for example, Gavrilo Princip, is just mentioned as the victim of Austro Hungarian oppression in all this time. Uh, it, it's said that the war started because of the Austro Hungarian imperialistic ambitions. And through through various basically World War One is explained as inevitable like the inevitable clash of the old school bourgeoisie and colonial empires that led to destruction of that world and uh, through which uh, we through which the socialist world arose In the same vein world war 2 is looked at as uh, as how the the fascists and capitalists uh, wanted to destroy the newfound wealth of the soviet union and, and stop us at uh, becoming great and and like the First World War is a natural extension of all these of all these old monarchies and oppressive bourgeoisie and everything. That's, that's just the logical conclusion of that age to Soviets. It's perfectly normal and natural. And of course they lament that, oh no, so many people died. But they also admit that, yes, it was actually, uh, it, it would have happened eventually, essentially. And that that was the big catalyst that drove people to understand and drove people to the Soviet Revolution. They view it that way and 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 then yeah world war 2 that again is a response to and it's actually a plot by capitalists to destroy the soviets and another attempt for imperialists to regain power essentially there's there's not that much about about individual personalities and in, in this um the these old books they really they just say Tsar regime was oppressive and everything but they don't view it as individual people making uh, individual things really Some individual heroic tales are, of course, told about valiant revolutionary Lenin and all that stuff, but it's trends and forces, completely trends and forces. They, um, I guess they might agree with you, but they they take it to the utter extreme, stating that basically the only thing going on is trends and forces as per dialectic scientific Marxism. They say that individuals have zero impact on anything and that Therefore, everything can be reducible to these trends and forces, and according to Marxism, everything can be predicted, and rise of socialism and its global victory is, um, of course, completely natural and will 100% happen, because um, history is just like maths. you just have to look the right way. I guess I want to go back
2: a little bit to the World War One then, because... So, is that is the whole World War I versus, say, say Austria Hungary? Is that because of a certain jealousy because Russia has always thought the Balkans belonged to them, kind of thing? Does that always come back in all the histories from World War I until
0: all the way up until the end? See, uh, also, they blame Tsar for Tsar's own uh, imperialistic ambitions of acquiring of acquiring these um, territories in the Balkans as the reason why, you know, Tsar was willing to throw um, millions of people to the gr- to the grinding stone and to just, mm-hmm. like, lose a bunch of people just for a blatant land grab. Th- they don't like the Tsar at all. And they say, oh, it was just Tsar's ambition and this, and they they do, and it, uh, they and Tsar oh, okay. was oppressing people to do this so- to fuel his war machine mm-hmm. and all that stuff. First of all, war rapidly shifts into revolution period. It's bas- basically, uh, Soviet Arab, these books, they basically focus on what Lenin was doing in specific times, how he was working this, and and there is not much written about the Western Front. You you don't really learn anything as about what was going on on the Western Front, you, you just learn that uh, in the end, multi- basically the whole focus on First World War is that so many the evil look at what the evil imperialists are doing look at how many people died so now the really important part that happened because of the war is our glorious revolution obviously okay, okay so so it, uh, and they're sort <laughs> of happy that for example actually interestingly enough uh, in the in the, fi- in the 50s like the, the late uh, glasnost history book when it comes to the first world war it's it at least shows some compassion and like like says uh, it's kind of you know it's bad that so many people died. Look what the evil capitalists did there, you know. But but it's kind of sad that so many people died. And and but but the fifties book is like wow. Look at look at how the capitalist economy. Th- their focus was more like how the capitalist economies have suffered. You know, it almost pushed all the world to socialist revolution. But evil capitalists just uh, essentially why did why the world didn't turn socialist immediately. At the same time, Russia did was just, because uh, your evil oppressive capitalists after the First World War must have oppressed the communist parties everywhere and must have uh, done some mass extermination, which is now being, uh, you know, hushed, hushed and, and done in secret, but it, it must have happened.
2: So is the Eastern Front kind of seen as this great Russian victory because of you know Austria Hungary just basically died from General Winter on the Eastern Front? So is that seen as like a a military victory or say a victory against you know the impre- the oppressive Austria Hungarian regime or?
0: See, it's it's weird. It's seen as look. The Tsar is looked upon as betraying his own people for getting into the war in the first first place and having these imperialistic ambitions. At the same time, Mm. the fact that revolution happened is kind of looked at on the other side. Because, yeah, but you know, that finally allowed us to do the revolution and liberate the people from the evil Tsar. And and curb the excesses of the nobility, uh, give true freedom to the people. It's kind of dualistic. They hate the Tsar for starting the war, but they like that the war started because then they could do that revolution.
2: Uh, okay. So, I, yeah, I guess, I guess um, instead of... I thought I was going to start at the October Revolution and go forward, but I actually feel like going backwards then. Uh, you mentioned Marxism and things like that. How... Around World War I, um, we did this in... I don't know if you heard our um, Carlin on the Luddite revolt. But, actually, um, I, I haven't listened to all the Carlins yet. I
0: regularly forget to do that.
2: Oh, that's fine. That's fine. But um the the Carlin, the Carlin, we did on the Luddite was pretty interesting because in after after the whole, whole Luddite revolt, um you had kind of an extension of the Luddite revolt which was um anarchism in the early 20th century. And anarchists hated Marxism, kind of going back to the Luddite ideas that in that Marxism Marxism uh, put all the value on the machines and who owned the machines and who owned the means of production, rather than putting the value on the people, the skilled workers themselves. So when we talk about Marxism, does how we view Marxism as say Russia, Russia itself became more, you know, it was nominally communist became but became more capitalistic as it went on. Does the view toward the original ideals of Marxism change with the with the decades in those textbooks, or is it always pretty much the same? Party? No. Of course not. Of course not. What
0: are you? <clears throat> what do you think we're gonna betray the Marx Lenin thing? Marx and Lenin are always put together, and uh, even Gorbachev in his perestroika books says that you know what? We are actually not becoming more capitalistic. It's a common mistake. That he says that. What what? What he's doing in the perestroika is returning back to the true interpretations of marx and lenin that those true interpretations had been corrupted marx and lenin is always there especially lenin lenin gets deified marx is like the precursor and but his studies but, but he he's being like taught in every school every university forever And a quick side note, those were often the most boring lectures ever, and it might sound like a joke, but you know, at that time you had to go to your classes in university, like, wearing a suit or something, but people tended to just basically, and those those lectures were mandatory, even if you went to our, like, College of Arts, or, or the musical a higher education facility, or whatever. If you were studying to become a doctor, every possible profession that you could like education that you could get in the college involved these Marxism classes, scientific Marxism. You couldn't pass, and you, you couldn't become like, for example, a professional, say, bass player. Um, you know, from from that that conservatorium thing, if you didn't, if you didn't really get got your your great good grades on on Marx Lenin classes, and that's kind of interesting because. Uh, one of my dad's colleagues from there, uh, you know, the, the the if you want to become a professional choreographer for ballet, you also had to finish these Marxism-Leninism classes. And one of my dad's friends, who ended up being a quite a great choreographer for our ballet, uh, his family wasn't very politically kind of, uh, you know... Let's just say uh, you only could get into university if you had somewhat of a clean slate, because you had these exams and everything, but if you, you know... Went to some protests and the people in the university understood that you're not exactly very friendly to the regime And you're like openly not very friendly to the regime You know, they would do everything they can to throw you out of the university And you know, some, sometimes legally, but sometimes less legally But you know, to, to keep up appearances they, they had to find a valid good reason why they would kick you out So the story goes like this, this choreographer dude he has his final exams before, like, before he would get his diploma and everything, like, final exam session. And, uh, but, but he's just been informed that, you know what, they, they are going to throw him out and everything. And he has also some, some humanitarian subjects is that's a pedi- kind of, that's the teacher's position as well. So he ma- manages to pass off some subjects. Uh, he's given extra hard um, versions of, of the exam. He manages to pass them, but he still has to write an essay in this Marxism-Leninism class. Like, scientific Marxism class at the end requires you to write an essay. And everyone just knows that, no, 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 he's gonna get a 1 in that one, because uh, back then, schools, the, all the grades were written from 1 to 5. 5 being the best one, 1 being when you fail. 1 and 2 is you fail, 3, 4, 5 is acceptable. So, um, everyone knows that that dude's gonna fail. He's, he's going to the exam for this reason, very, very drunk, and mega pissed off, because, you know, he just wants to finish the damn university. But then... Then he has to write this essay, and the, the theme of the essay is: <clears throat> Would you explain how? What would you explain? What your ideal is in in life, and what will you do after you finish this university to to become like him? And basically, an essay explaining some you know you grab some common, you grab something which you want to idolize, and you kind of what will you do to make this country better? Blah blah. It's it's bullshit political nonsense. Okay. So, and he sits there, and he knows that whatever he writes, he's gonna get, like, um, a, a failed a failed grade, and, and, you know, that's gonna be published, and he won't finish. But he did, because he sat down there for half an hour, wrote a single sentence on that piece of paper, then handed in the essay, and he has, was given a three, and he passed. Because of the, because they just, because those people up there, they could have gotten, all of these essays were collected and looked at by the politically, political officers, and if they would have given bad grades for this essay, they would've got into trouble themselves, because the one sentence he wrote was <clears throat> There is no man on planet Earth that I admire and want to be like more than our great leader uh, Leonid Brezhnev And No explanations, no nothing Basically, he had to write nothing that that could look even remotely suspicious and you know, as Brezhnev was leader at the time, what uh, 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 it would look terribly, terribly bad if he would then like get a bad grade and went with this essay of one sentence to the to to, to tire up some different political offices because everyone had enemies back then in the apparatchik's bureaucracy. So yeah, they had to give him a three so he could become a choreographer. <laughs> That's funny that's interesting people you said you mentioned that was so
2: boring. It's never talked about and and it was never I don't know if it's, the situation's changed. it probably hasn't um because I was still kind of at the tail end of all history books, kind of just taught American exceptionalism, you know uh, George Washington could never tell a lie. Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves, and everything was wonderful. We defeated Hitler in World War two, and nothing bad ever happened, and we never did anything bad. Um, So it was kind of like that. And I remember one time um, during a school book fair and and actually what what got me interested in all of this is I uh, during a school book fair where they were just clearing out some old books from the high school library.
0: I got it for one dollar. I'm sorry. I, I moved on my chair. (laughs) <laughs> I, can't, I can't move my legs today. I'm sorry. Okay, for
2: for I I saw I saw a book. I actually I actually saw the Communist Manifesto, and I bought it for one dollar. And this was in high school, and I read it, and it really kind of blew my mind because it was all it's all a bunch of stuff that sounded pretty reasonable, and I didn't know, I didn't understand how. Anybody American could object to it because you know you grew up you grew up in America thinking you know you know communism is evil communism is horrible communism is just eating boiled potatoes every day and you know sitting around trash can fires at night and then um and then I read this book and I thought wow how could anybody that has a job basically object to what this book is saying. I didn't understand at all. Like how, how, how could the average person say these were all bad ideas? I mean, maybe some of them are, you know, less realistic than others, but how could you completely dismiss it outright? And we had an assignment in a socialism class. I remember that year and the assignment was, you know, I had a real kind of a hippy dippy teacher and his assignment was, you have to come up in front of the class and teach something. You can teach anything you want. Just teach something for an hour. That's, that's your, that's your assignment. And then I thought, okay, well, I'll be really impressive and teach the tenets of communism vis-a-vis the Communist Manifesto. And everyone got really mad at me when I was up there teaching. <laughs> people people responded hostily. Even the teacher was kind of thinking that I was just... It, intentionally trying to be a troublemaker by getting up and trying to explain why property was theft or something like that, you know, like, <laughs> and I was just, and people got really mad because it just seems so antithetical to everything we learned in, Amer- in American history. So that's interesting to learn that even, even in Russia, you weren't that thrilled about having to learn about these two, th- I guess, cause it just
0: got shoved down your throat so much. You had to learn about it everywhere. All the time. Everything on these history books. Yeah, and that, that's giving me a nice subject. Every part of, this, of these history books is just filled with why communism is great. How all of this works into social into Marxism. And interestingly enough, even in the books in the 80s, unless it's purely about Riga, which ends in 75, all these other history books, you know, they end at the end of World War II. Done. Even in the 80s, uh, there was nothing in the books about what happens in the 60s. No, no mention of current politics whatsoever. At all.
2: Oh, that's, that's funny, because you think they would want to mention all like, the space race stuff, but that's not in history
0: books at all? No, not, no. No, it just... Uh, like, this Reagan, The Age of Socialism, thats more of economics book, really, but uh, all these history books end at the end of World War II. And it's it's strange, really. And it's like peppered, and this this one I have from from what is it, seventy seven? Yeah, it it's basically it's about the history of uh, Latvian SSR essentially, and it just goes through starting with with Tacitus. Basically, it starts with Tacitus and doing something with that, and 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 the chapter tiles are like um, it. It never says Latvian territory, never says Baltics. It just says in the territory of Latvian SSR, everything is Latvian SSR and their their chapter names are for example uh, baltic crusade is, is, is the chapter about baltic crusade is instead uh, is is instead uh, like named the fight, the fight and struggle against the aggression of german feudalists like this this or or <laughs> latvian people under the yoke of german feudalists the chapter after that
1: and ah, then the, ne- then so the next I mean- p-
0: and the next part is in- interestingly called. And all this time, uh, every tiniest sliver, rumor, and everything that the, all, all the time that we here in the Baltics, in Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia have actually been very closely tied to the Russians, and that Russians have taught us culture, and that Russians were always the good guys, and that we are actually almost the same people, and that Russians are very very good, and that they're crucial to our existence, uh, that's peppered there completely. For example, another chapter is called. Livonia during the time of uh, the, the during the time of the creation of Russian centralized state. I mean, they define the time period uh, this time period of uh, of early sixteenth century as basically the time of of creation of a unified Russia. They define everything through this, because um, it, it's all peppered there, because. Um, it states how we actually always wanted to join Russia. It was it, it was good. Russians have always been there. They have done everything, and actually, Russians um, from Pskov really wanted to help us during the Baltic Crusade. But but the Germans oppressed them because they're evil. <coughs> <coughs> Bonus points if you haven't if you have listened to our Northern Crusade episode, which was also on both feeds, then you might have noticed that the uh, the Russians really didn't have any well, impact whatsoever in. During these crusades here, they were too busy fighting their own, fighting their own troubles, you know. Well,
2: yeah, yeah, I think I think the only involvement you could say the Russians really had would have been like the whole Alexander Nevsky era in, in Novgorod. But more than that, they didn't really. It's not like they really they didn't really help in the stopping of the of the Teutonic Knights. Really, that was all Poland Lithuania. Yeah, 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 but, yeah, but that's another
0: subject. Even though the Soviet Union always said that they were very international, this whole Russian centrism there. That's very, 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 very harsh on hard and hard and thro- throw felt there. It's it's amazing. Basically, interestingly enough, uh, the Russians, the Russians apparently, according to the Soviets, have invented everything. It, it wasn't it it wasn't Edison that invented the light bulb. It was uh, some Russian who uh, kind of did. You know, he experimented with that. So actually, he's the first one who did it. And it goes well, was, it, so that, was it was
2: it was it was Nikolai Tesla? was he? Uh,
0: no, that's that's not Tesla. Who, that's another dude. That's another dude whose name oh. I cannot find. There, it's just I know that was. Oh, I, interestingly enough, uh, it's it actually says in in the early 20th century history that brothers brothers Wright actually didn't invent the airplanes. It was a certain Russian named Mazulsky. And there was, a, and there's interesting, interesting enough about the fact that how they go to great lengths, how they go to great lengths about explaining what, what, what experiments this Mazulski did, with with aeronautics and everything, and how he actually did it before the brothers Wilber Wright and stuff, and how he actually is responsible for modern airplanes and everything. You know, and I thought, you know, I'm I'm looking at this and I'm like, I haven't heard of this guy. What's what's, what's the deal here? So I googled this one up, and you know what, Mazulski really did invent the airplane, but you know what's the problem there? It didn't fly. Oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean there was there were there's been experiments with flight going all the way back, but I guess you know the kind of the that Orville and, and Wilbur Wright thing is just more like to the point of like American exceptionalism. No no no, no, no. actually that, no know-
0: dude, no 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 man. The thing is this Mazuski dude he really 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 wanted to make a machine that could be heavier than air and still fly. And he tried his best to do it. Except he failed, and it never took off. You I mean if if you invent an airplane that that never flies and cannot fly, and you never succeed at that, then you really can't be called the inventor of an airplane. I think.
2: I mean. Yeah, I guess it. I guess it at least has to fly uh, before. Yeah, I guess to say you really succeeded in inventing the airplane. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. I didn't know about that. Um, I didn't know, but I'll have to do some more reading. I'll have to pick up on that. But I guess so more toward. Um. Back where we're going, so in the years between World War One and World War Two, when kind of the the Soviet politics was really kind of cementing itself, what does it say about say like um, the the. Um, I guess I'll say the rivalry between, say, like Stalin and Trotsky. Trotsky, who wanted to keep the glorious revolution going and spread it to all countries, and Stalin, who was more of a military dictator. Does Stalin come out as the good guy because of World War Two, Or is, is Trotsky kind of demonized? Or does it see, even Stalin get mentioned at the, all?
0: Ah, uh-huh, you see, this, this is this is where, where we're at now at the show, too, in, in, in a sense. Because Stalin is, of course, the glorious hero of everything, and the uh, fifty history book nineteen fifty written mm. while he was alive, but after the 20th Congress of uh, the Communist Party in the Soviet Union, where Khrushchev gained power just after Stalin's death uh, Stalin was demonized then and after that Stalin is said to basically Stalin overdid this Stalin made a personality cult he had nice ideas, but he was a terrible 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 man and no 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 he 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 was responsible for mass murders and he wasn't good and he corrupted the communist ideals because you know what you to, to, to legitimize your own power, Khrushchev had to put Stalin down and all these things, because Stalin had managed to piss off a bunch of, you know, the schema had managed to piss off uh, all the other power elites by shooting everyone and making everyone very threatened. Trotsky, however, is always demonized, but the problem is he's not really that even mentioned that much. Like I said, uh, all these things, Mensheviks, which he led, are mentioned, but uh, it's like, yeah, but they those guys were easily crushed. <laughs> Trotsky, t- t- Trotsky turned out to be a traitor and ran away, died in exile. Done. <laughs> wow! Yeah,
2: it's. Uh, I guess you'd have to kind of sweep him under the rug, yeah. Uh,
0: basically, they sweep under, they, they sweep everything under the rug. They don't really delve mm-hmm. into this. Uh, Trotsky just swept under the rug, and nothing really, nothing really is happening, except that you know during during these interwar periods, like Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, we were all independent. So was the Czechoslovakia. And you know a bunch of countries uh, and uh, they write about this period here stating that it's uh, mm, mm, mm. in this book, for example, it says mm, the capitalistic Latvia under the bourgeoisie bu- uh, under the tyranny of bourgeoisie hmm. <laughs> uh, they they uh, they of course say that we had our own small civil war going on here because there were some communists here at that time, and I'll get to the I'll get to the October Revolution in the show. It's really interesting because at one point Latvia had three governments at the same time, which is weird. Yeah, but basically it says how actually the communist government is the really legitimate one, and how um, all these nationalistic bourgeoisie capitalists were really just uh, stating uh, set, setting up their nationalistic government, even though obviously all the working men wanted to join the Soviet Union. Yes, yes, and and things like that, uh, and and how everything was terrible and dreadful, and they glorify a bunch of you know a bunch of Soviet dissidents and and who happened to be alive there. They, they try to find like. Uh, For example, whole chapter in this history book is dedicated to a guy who managed to, who managed to basically save an underground printing press um, by stealing this small single printing press and grabbed, grab it to his apartment where he kept it for a week before sending it to the Soviet Union. You have a chapter dedicated to just this guy who saved one printing press. They tried to stick because Soviet Soviet power and all the communists weren't popular in Latvia during the twenties and thirties, well, for quite obvious reasons. Because we we look we looked to our big neighbor the Soviet Union next door and we we're like, uh, no, guys. So, yeah, and they they try to paint that period as completely oppressive and terrible, and try to paint it as though you know, as though people always wanted to be in the Soviet in the Soviet Union. What really, really struck me, interestingly enough, about this period is that, you know, the Soviets apparently were so afraid of any nationalism and any nationalistic symbols whatsoever that not only uh, the flags and, and, like, the heraldry and, and some national symbols of, of Latvia or Lithuania or Estonia from that, that time period, they're, they're not, not only shown in any photographs. They're, they're not even mentioned. They, they just don't mention even how interwar Latvia, which is our current flag of Latvia, how it even looked like. Which is kind of interesting. I have
2: a question about that because I didn't know...
1: Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com.
2: That, um, say, like Latvia, Estonia, and, you know, Lithuania, kind of, they had independence in the interwar period. So was there ever a chance that these uh, Baltic countries may have gone over to another side, maybe have joined Germany or, um, say, joined Sweden? Or was there ever a chance where they might have been lured away before they got absorbed by the
0: Soviet Union? Oh boy. Oh, short history of, of Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. Uh, very short about that time. Extremely short. Uh, basically, Sovi- basically, Soviet, basically, uh, Soviet, Russia has its revolution and the Lat- and bunch of countries decide to grab their own independence and set up their own governments here. In 19 in 1918, 18th of November, Latvia declares that, yay, hey, we're we're our own separate country. At the same time, there is a Soviet-made government who says, no, 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 you're a Latvian SSR somewhere there in Daugavpils, uh, which is basically uh, parts from the arm- from the Russian army you know, led by 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 uh, Lenin and supported by some locals who say, no, 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 let, let's just grab them back into the Soviet Union. At the same time, the remnants of the German army, which are still here. Uh, want to create their own sort of German-run state, which should make Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia as essentially vassals of Germany. And kind of uh, all German, mm. essentially all German monarchists trying to seize some territory to as their base of power so that they could pla- plan for the future. That happens in 1918. Uh, uh, later, no, 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 we, we, there were some plans about some Baltic Federation forming, maybe, maybe, but it, it went really nowhere. But, yeah, Russians, uh, Soviets came here first in 1940, and then Hitler invaded. Essentially, the idea was that Stalin came here first, annexed us, just like he did in Crimea, like with a completely free and honest referendum where 99.9% vote yes, with tanks on the street and armed soldiers everywhere. You, you know, with ah, with with, yes. oth- with every other party yeah. except the Communist Party forbidden. Nice elections there, Really? Um, so then, yeah, and, and then the big purges started here and a lot of, like, about, f- essentially about 40% of, of people living here ended up being sent to gulags or Siberia just died and stuff. And after this, Hitler came here and treated us as demi-human. Not quite human, but not as bad as Stalin did, so... Uh, uh, it's a dodgy subject, I want to touch it way later, because it's so complicated that I don't even want to get into this. This is just about Soviet education, so really. then, But yeah, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. Yeah. We used to be independent from 1918 to 1940, for 22 years.
2: Wow, so, okay, so there was... there. Was, oh, uh, that's interesting, I guess that would have been the battleground you were really fought over. That was pretty much the Eastern Front, and then I guess it was uh, pretty bad... Uh... Um, especially during World War II, and um, so I guess I, I sort of had my uh, so is World War II painted as this kind of um battle between, say, because I mean, America wasn't really an antagonist to Russia yet, so is it seen as this sort of war between the ideals of communism and fascism, or is it seen because you were seeing like uh, there was talk about you know, America's imperialism? This you is pretty
0: weird because okay. For starters, it's not called World War II in uh, in Russia, in even modern-day Russia. It's called the Great Patriotic War. Because World War II starts in 1939. Great Patriotic War starts in 1941. Because Soviet Union does not participate in World War II from the very beginning, because uh, they were allied with Hitler at that point, and they had this non-aggression pact. See, interestingly, uh, when when it mentions World War Two, basically Soviet Union says that uh, we needed to protect ourselves from the evil, evil capitalists abroad, and but we we were we were a very peaceful country, and and we trusted Hitler because you know even though he was a terrible, terrible monster, we gave him a chance, you know, and he backstabbed us and was a terrible, terrible monster. Oh, what a surprise! There, you guys. But the idea is that this non- non-aggression pact and Molotov-Ribbentrop pact is portrayed as uh, Soviets being kind and nice and peace-loving dudes in the quotation. Like, we're just gonna give him a chance. I mean, um, the capital, the evil capitalists say he's bad, and we don't like the evil capitalists too, but we know that he's a terrible evil monster, but, but you know, you, you can never know. It's Basically, they, they try to reason their way out of why they were allied at the beginning. And here comes the weirdest part. I mean, in September 1939, when Soviet Union is still allied with Hitler and how the First World War starts, is that Hitler invades Poland. That starts the Second World War, right? But at the same time, just like, a, I guess, a few days later, Soviet Union also invades Poland from the other side, which is kind of interesting, because, you know, they did it. they even held a victory parade together in, in their, between their occupation lines, which people tend to forget. And uh, it is also now legal to say that in Russia... But, yeah, that happened. And you should really look look that one up, because it's uh, very scary how Soviet generals and Nazi generals are just marching in occupied um, Poland together. So, those guys didn't like anyone. But the, the Soviet side justified their joint invasion of Poland, which it actually was, as essentially trying to liberate Ruthenians, Belarusians, and... Western Ukrainians from the Dominance and the oppression of the evil Polish nobility szlachta, which were still ruling there and were oppressing them So when, when Hitler was waiting, they were trying to save those people and the Polish people from their own nobility and their terrible terrible oppression That is why they needed to be invaded by the Soviet Union and made Soviet obviously <laughs>
2: Yeah, I guess so. I mean, because uh, that's an interesting take on that, because, I mean, it's only recently become accepted in America that when Hitler first came into power in the 1930s, he was admired by a lot of politicians and leaders of industry in America, actually, who uh, heralded him as this kind of hero of, uh, of Germany after, you know, World War I. And, you know, when he opened the Autobahn and things like that, people just thought that was brilliant you know, kind of trains ran on time type thinking. So I guess I could see where at first you kind of wanted to be on his team before it all went off the rails and he invaded Russia and things like that. No, but
0: see, see one of the interesting theories is that, what I have heard is that uh, Stalin was very happy about Hitler being in power. For example, Hitler didn't actually outright win the elections. Uh, of You know, he won the elections outright, but... During that time, there was a great chance that uh, social democrats and locals, like hardcore socialists, were funded by the Soviet Union at the time, and both of these parties knew that if they don't work together and don't run as the, as a, as a united block, then Hitler would win. So socialists wanted to like make a joint list with the social democrats, running together and thus winning these elections when Hitler came to power. Interestingly, Stalin. He could send messages to these socialists explicitly forbidding socialists to do just that. And giving them money and threatening to cut off their money if they, if, if they even think about making a joint list of social democrats. Now think about it, Stalin could have just prevented Hitler from ever having power. Oh yeah, and at the same time he, he basically invited, uh, like Germany had to be demilitarized at the time and he, Soviet Union for a while... Needed a lot of gold, so they took Germany's gold and trained German German guys, German officers in their own assault schools. I mean, uh, really, a lot of German air commanders had learned how to operate their planes and air wings in Soviet in Soviet kind of airfields.
2: Weren't you? I think you you mentioned before telling me too that the Soviet Union allowed the uh, the German army to perform kind of war games too, and they're kind of secretly within Soviet
0: territory, right? Weren't you? Just, I think. Yeah. yeah. There's a, there are also documents on that, but we're derailing this to very <laughs> hardcore territory. I just want to talk about education more. This was like really really fun, Why not? I, no, that's a... but yeah, but it's all about <laughs> no, see, it's a... all about the political aspect really, and at the same time, modern politics never mentioned. They don't mention modern, like after World War II, it all dries up. There is no, no history after World War II. And previous history is all about this Russian exceptionalism, essentially. And this, this whole how everything naturally turns into socialism and how everything works that way. And it's kind of, um, really scary if you think about it. And, and a lot of people just tend to skip all these classes. It's like collectivism also plays a huge role in this. Like I mentioned in my childhood episode, all, this, all, all these textbooks and everything are just geared to show how individuals alone can do nothing, how collectivism is important, how everyone should be raised in the communist morale, as they always tend to really downplay any significant role by, by a, a single individual. Interestingly enough, uh, well, by the way, uh, Russians apparently really loved the French Revolution. It's weird because uh, hmm. they see it as the precursor to their own revolution. Like, basically, French Revolution is it, it kind of it breaks down feudalism and turns it into this modern bourgeoisie capitalism, of which the next step would logically then be the global communism revolution. So they they kind of don't approve of the capitalism at all, but they look at the Jacobins as their heroes. They look at Jacobins as people who were progressively thinking and they were advancing history in the right direction. I mean, they, they would be considered scum by socialism standards because they were not uh, socialistic enough and they didn't follow Marx, who wasn't born at the time, obviously, but, uh, they were in general, like, uh, yeah, they, they were very progressive for their times, they were excellent dudes and everything. And explicitly, no, no mentions of Great Terror. Practically none. Uh, what, what is said about Great Terror in, in there about Robespierre and his head choppings is that, um, that yeah well of course uh, like in every other revolution some um, enemies and counter revolutionaries who were clinging to the past and were uh, really a dire uh, deemed a very dire threat to the existence of the state were put uh, were were el- eliminated and dealt with but yeah there is no mention of mass terrors drownings and massive use of guillotine nothing like that and Napoleon himself by the way is seen as some sort of logical conclusion to this bourgeoisie revolution even because even though it's progressive it could not have ended well because it was still a bourgeoisie revolution even though it's progressive they're, it's, they're still bad so napoleon uh, kind of ends the revolution corrupts it uh, takes it to its logical conclusion and uses it to fuel his own imperialistic ambitions and brings law to people and it's kind of he can't stop the progress from happening but he kind of twists and abuses this progress and and one my theory personally and i spoke with people about this is that um they don't mention the the large terror hmm. because uh, that would um, at least for the smarter side of the population uh would kind of um you know it would have some serious implications if uh, you would uh, really talk about the terror in french revolution and then uh, you remember that while reading lenin's uh, combined works which also are which also is a mandatory reading you understand that there's uh, so many mentions of terror there even by lenin already that it's kind of insane i can imagine so i guess
2: what what i i think my takeaway so far from this is it's really fascinating to me and maybe even kind of confusing to me that the Russian history books would stop at World War II because immediately after World War II two very important things come along. That's uh, Mao Zedong and Fidel Castro. These would seem to be great victories for the uh, Russian government communistic ideals, but they don't talk about the People's Republic of China and the Cuban Revolution at all? Oh, no, no. There are different books
0: about Cuba, but it's not mm-hmm. just taught at school. Uh, it's like geography classes, maybe, yes, but not in history. History ends there. They didn't touch modern politics. They didn't want people to get very interested in modern politics, you see. And about Mao, well, he was Stalinist for starters. He was very, very Stalinist. And Khrushchev was a KGB man, not a Stalinist man. In the 20th Congress of the Communist Party, when Khrushchev gets power. He denounces Stalin a lot. He says that, no, no, this personality cult can't go on. We must reform our country a bit. We will live on differently from now on. You know, stuff like that. Just to legitimize him and, you know, make sure that people don't hate him as much. Even though he's just as violent, he said just he's he's doing it a bit differently, so to speak. But you see, Mao, he was he wasn't on board with this denouncing Stalin at one point, because he was still very much alive and kicking when Stalin died. And he was like, wait a minute, uh, I'm operating like Stalin, I like Stalin, I operate the same way, what's going on with you guys? So he basically thought that. Khrushchev and everyone else had gone off from the right straight path set by Stalin. So he sticked around and obviously Khrushchev later couldn't support Mao either. So so he started... Because essentially Mao thought that by denouncing Stalin they denounce him by proxy as well. And at one point they kind of did because they weren't happy with the direction the China was going with their still cult of personality and all this Maoism. So... China after Stalin's death turns into a um, a rival essentially, so not not very friendly relationships with them, not many mentions. So I guess I guess my,
2: so. Okay, so I think I'm starting to understand here. They didn't want people getting too involved in the modern political situation because they wanted to be able to control the narrative. Right? They wanted to be able to control what was being said about what was happening and they didn't want people being too aware of the rest of the world, I guess, because that would um, undermine yeah. their ability to control what people heard.
0: Yeah, exactly. And for example, the only thing, like I've mentioned also before, was that also in the news, for one, there were there were like only, only good news made the news. Like Soviets built a new road, Soviets did this, Soviets did that. Some of that was terribly exaggerated, of course, but no bad news, no criticism, nothing. Just the good stuff. The narrative was extremely controlled. But yeah, I, I don't know. And this information control, like I said, it was difficult to get into university. Because, well, those people who were whose families were like really un- considered unfriendly to the nation, those guys were just put aside and never looked at. And like I said, my grandmother only made it to the medical school, because uh, her dad was a Lutheran preacher. She only made it to the medical school because she finished high school with a with a gold medal. Essentially, she had, like, all fives. one four in, in scientific Marxism because she really hated scientific Marxism, like everyone else, but uh, she only made it to the university because of her grades, and they just couldn't couldn't throw her out without precautions from above. But yeah, there was this nice political joke about, about getting a university and all the Soviet education. It's like... A, Back at, back then, like right now, you get into university with your centralized exam grades, which you get when you're in when you high school. Back then, you had to take another separate exam to get into university. And there was this joke about a brand new student trying to get into the faculty of history. An attempt to get into the faculty of history with a huge, a, a huge corruption, like the system of Blatnoy, you know, these... With, with essentially, a student is trying to get into the history faculty with gigantic, enormous connections and, and, and with the right people and everything. His exam, cons- he goes to the examiner, takes up one of the tickets with random tickets with a question and is asked, Is it true that World War II happened from 1939 to 1945? Well, yes. Great, you're in. Now, another student comes in and, and he's like, um, not so well connected. He's, he has paid some money. His family has arranged some things, such as given um, deficit products and arranged a pair of Levi's for the professor, but they're not that good. Just, just not good connections, not as good. So he pulls out his ticket and, and, and his question is like, name the years in which the, the World War II lasted. Uh, he says 1939 to 1945. And the second and he gets a second question. Yeah, and how many people did the Soviet Union lose in World War II? And he responds, um, 20 million. Great. You're in. And now finally the third, your average student, comes in passing this exam. He has, he doesn't, like, without connections. Standard try, so to speak. First question. Years of the World War II. Second question. How many people? That he answers both of them, and then the third question comes: the great. And now name all of those people. <laughs>
2: yeah, I, I see where you're going with that. That's, that's pretty.
0: It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't as bad. But uh, but but yeah. And and this, this at one point, but if you got in, it was extremely hard to like get out of there. And well, unless you failed your grades, which was which was kind of. Kind of a bit a bit hard to do all of this. And yeah, but then again, some teachers were under some professors and everything. The teacher was also hard pressed to, to study all of this because, you know, some, some of the students could have been like agents sent in by the KGB to, to look at if you're teaching everything the right way. They had to write accounts and they, you know, all the books and everything they had to write in this. Like, you have a textbook, for example, and uh, we still use these textbooks because. When it comes to philosophy, I mean Plato translated to Latvian is still Plato translated to Latvian. It doesn't really, you know, age. It doesn't change the Plato. You can read Plato from the same book, and that's a good Latvian translation. So why would you why would you use another book, right? I mean, it, I hope it makes sense that we still use Plato translations because they're made by the same people. But essentially, if you are a philosophy student and you need to read Plato and you have this one book which is trans when you, you kind of the the teachers need to translate it from. Latin, from from Greek to, to Latvian, right? But to do so, they have to write a prologue to this book, which explains how Plato's writings, why would they be necessary, um, and how would they advance the socialist agenda. So, in my nice Plato translation of things, uh, Plato's Theaetetus, the, the huge dialogue, in the prologue, it, it, it's written that um we, we need to read Plato because then we can understand the the very basis of uh, how bourgeoisie bourgeoisie ideology how the capitalist ideology is built and 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 uh, um, he kind of influenced Hegel later, which influenced Marx so then you can see the basis of scientific Marxism. Basically, they pulled, pulled out bullshit from their ass they had to pull out bullshit from their ass in every prologue explaining how all of this pertains to communism in one way or another to get any foreign thing translated whatsoever. So so the, the, then it
2: stands to reason to me that you wouldn't have heard too much American history back then. The justification would be that this we need this to learn more about, say, the imperialistic enemy, the Americans or whatever like that, capitalism.
0: Very, hmm. very, very vaguely. I mean, you, you heard the basics uh, in these books. I mean, the American Revolution is mentioned, but it's mentioned in the sense that, again, it's, Kind of the precursor to the French Revolution, which is looked at in much more detail. it's said that oh, you know, it was it was the capitalistic bourgeoisie who wanted to end the feudalism, and this marked the beginning of the end of feudalism. It doesn't really go into the battles that much; it's just mentioned in passing. Like I don't know, not even a, not even a whole chapter is dedicated to the American Revolution. There is there is just and about the Civil War. Well, it's not mentioned in the book in the 50s. Not mentioned in the book in the 70s. And in 186, there is a mention of the civil war in about three sentences. And like, oh, yeah, and during that time, like, they, they talk about Russia. And it says, basically, oh, yeah, and in that time, Americans had their civil war because uh, evil because evil bastards wanted to keep slavery going. Poof.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I guess it, it doesn't
2: pertain too much to what the situation in Russia was at the time. But I guess, yeah, that's interesting to – because, yeah, we just, we just don't get any of that Russian history up until maybe – Maybe a little bit on the fall, maybe a little bit of on perestroika, because I was kind of a you know a Jim Henson's perestroika baby, and that I was um I was a kid around the time of Gorbachev, and you know, everybody would just make the jokes about the birthmark on his forehead kind of a thing. You didn't really get too much into his policies. Or you had like you know, say like the Reagan moments we you know with, you know, um Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. So I guess the Berlin Wall isn't mentioned too much. If the modern history isn't discussed either, so I mean, how did people even learn about this stuff if nobody's talking about it?
0: Ah, some is that, Mm -hmm. and and, and like some is that, and all these all these books and all the smuggled stuff, and word of mouth mostly.
2: So you would just hear like a rumor that a wall was being built in Berlin.
0: You wouldn't, like, actually... Uh, no, you wouldn't hear a story in the news. Uh, of course, it was explained to the people who lived in Berlin and East Germany, but, you know... Um, in Soviet Union, we didn't even know about the wall unless we kind of saw it and then we heard it and it trickled down to us. But the press didn't go out publicly stating that, Oh, we're building this huge wall there to protect us from evil capitalists. Nothing like that happened there in the Soviet Union. I'm pretty sure it happened in East, East Germany, but I'm not an expert on that region. Yeah, same same thing. We actually, you'll be amazed because I said this on Rumor Flies show that no one really bothered to speak even much about the assassination of Kennedy too. It was like, oh yeah, he's assassinated, big deal.
2: <laughs> so I would have thought that would have been a bigger deal because there's so much involved with like the Cuban Missile Crisis and all that. Um, which what I guess was what
0: missile crisis,
2: <laughs> That never happened, right? There was no Bay of Pigs. No, 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 Bay of Pigs. Bay of Pigs
0: happened. Oh, because but what missile crisis?
2: Oh, but yeah, but, oh, I guess Bay of Pigs did happen because the Americans lost that one. So you'd want to talk about the great victory in that one.
0: Yeah, like only positive, like nothing critical at all. Mm-hmm. And and that's one of the things which Gorbachev tried to tried to do in his perestroika. He wanted to allow people to write of the truth but you know what when you hide what is actually going on in the world for almost 50 years uh at least 50 years here in latvia or longer in in proper russia well uh, you open the floodgates and then like like after a good hard constipation the (laughs) shit just comes out flowing freely (laughs)
2: man yeah yeah, I guess so. And then, yeah, how would how, I guess it would be pretty embarrassing, too. And, that, because and, now, that,
0: and, that, and that's an apt comparison. Well,
2: honest. sure, because, I mean, think about how embarrassing that would be to admit that you've been hiding all this stuff for 50 years. You'd look pretty bad. Um, So I guess you'd still want to hide enough of it to not look like a complete asshole when you finally put it all out there.
0: Yeah, but, you know, at the same time, in 1986, Gorbachev, um, you know, he how he handled the... the the Chernobyl catastrophe that 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 just that just shows that they were still trying when they even actually really couldn't like at all you know this is kind of interesting because at those times one of the weird things is that and that's another story was that when the computers kind of arrived at the first time and very very late 80s 80 up 8687 over here uh, they were called electronic calculation machines here by the way the name computer never really got, in, got into got into wide use here. But at the beginning, they weren't seen as that important. Everything was still analog for a long, long while. And at one point, I suppose, so it's made a mistake of not focusing on that. And when they started to figure out that, hey, those things might actually be very useful and like for other important things, then I, I suppose it was, it was too late.
2: Hmm, yeah, I guess... It might have been useful for helping uh, to regulate nuclear power devices. Um, Huh. I didn't even know that about the computers. I would have thought that... Well, I mean, how could they all be analog? Like, even, like, the missile systems were
0: still analog by then? Well, they had some micro-schemes and everything, but that was for, like, that was for, like, uh, military use or something. I mean, when I'm talking about computers, for example, you know, you had the Atari game system coming Mm -hmm. out. You had IBM PCs over there. Nothing like that happened. People just you know didn't figure out what was going on and the computers could be used in everyday life at all. some strictly military stuff of course was computerized but it was expensive and you know for example universities didn't use computers It was for the military hmm because just, it was it wasn't seen as a necessity unless for strictly military reasons like it was just oh why would why would we use com- computers somewhere like that or something and for example my, The first computer that I ever used was a Macintosh SE model, which was, it was one of those Macs with, uh, and I got it in 1995 when I was six. Well, I didn't get it, My, my stepfather had it, he worked the newspaper at the time. That was one of those monstrosities, which were like very, very tiny black and white screen. It was, like, completely utterly useless, I suppose. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, they, those really computers weren't good for too much, aside from, like, playing Dig Dug or Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. Um.
0: We had we had fucked up forms of piracy, man. <laughs> you know, we, we had these, we had amateurs, radio amateurs going around, and, like, Soviets decided to get on computers at the very, very, very end, just before the solution in 1991. Uh, in Russia like they invented tetris right so uh, that was about the period where uh, when when the computers became somewhat popular because they adopted it very quickly and there were these ZX spectrum computers and soviet rip-offs of those computers were really excellent because uh the soviet union had a tendency of basically whatever you you capitalists had in america Soviet government would spend no effort of making something like really, really, really good, much better than what you had. But the problem is they couldn't mass produce it. They could only make, like, like electronic music had a rich history in Soviet Union because they invented basically the first, uh, first electronic keyboard thingy. That's a Soviet thing, by the way, as far as I've I've noticed. And then they they actually somewhat somewhat pioneered electronic music Hmm. in some twisted form. Which is kind of crazy. I, I got a message after, after someone listened actually to that episode that you and Daniel did, like, a, about music, right? Mm-hmm. I figured out that, which I didn't know, is that Soviets had actually made some very experimental electronic electronic music instruments, but very, very few number. And they, they are credited on making the very first electronic music instrument ever, which was essentially, um, some sort of, ele- some sort of, Box with two antennas, and you then waved your ra- hand around these antennas, and that produced this whooshy sound or something. Oh, you mean, yeah, I, I oh, you mean the theremin. The here. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a Soviet invention. Oh yeah, yeah.
2: Le- uh, yeah, Leo Theremin was actually the name. Yeah, that's that, that's that sound you get from like nineteen fifties, you know, flying saucer sounds, like Woo! kind of stuff. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's cool. I didn't even know that. But yeah, Soviet, Soviet education consists of people being taught that everything is good and nice and kind and please ignore the reality and that you have to wait in line to get the sausage for 6 hours Mm. (laughs) as far as I get it and how I spoke with with dad and his friends was like they made history before Soviet era look actually way worse than it was just to make the current era look nicer (laughs) and that's kind of strange if you think about it like Right now, a lot of people want to make these golden ages happen and stuff, but back then? No, back then you had to paint history, which is bloody and terrible already. You had to make it even more bloodier and ter- terribler, because otherwise those people might start wondering, um, how is this better than it was back then? <laughs> nice. Uh,
2: that's cool. Um, Yeah, but that's, that's an interesting take on, I guess, the Soviet uh, textbook. I just... Uh... There's so much more to delve into. We'll have to do a series on some of the uh, some of these uh, interesting ideas that you've brought up today. But uh, I think that's a good place. This is a good jumping off point for a lot of different episodes we could potentially do.
0: I guess, I guess I'll guess i be definitely taking a more in-depth look at in, in some of this stuff on, on Eastern Border and analyzing it a bit more. But yeah, I suppose this is a nice jump off point. Glenn, would you do the honors? Uh, well I guess we could,
2: no <laughs> I guess we can just say like both of our uh facebook pages uh follow us on our twitters uh rate and review us on iTunes do our do our patreon www.patreon.com forward slash the lesser bonapartes and you have a patreon as well right Chris what's the address for that one Slash the Eastern Border. you see. Nice. In one word. We got that we got all that happening. Uh so you could always uh, <laughs> uh find us on there or write us in the lesserbonaparts at gmail.com or the eastern border at gmail.com and uh let us know how we're doing over there.
0: Please do let us know how we're doing because uh you know, we're trying to get better every time, all the time.
2: Yeah, we, we basically uh um, yeah I, I, had I to know, relearn how to do uh how to do shows. Uh, <laughs> and we're, we kind of started, we started from scratch and here we are now. And I'm glad that we're doing it. Uh, I'm glad we do these occasional crossover episodes as well. And uh, we will see you again, our respective shows, uh, Chris's Eastern border and ours, uh, our, uh, our lesser Bonaparte's until then. Uh, wait, a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What's, what's lesser Bonaparte's next show going to be about? Our deep dive. We're going to be doing our, uh, our Gareth approved series
0: on the Elamites. Oh yeah. Well, uh, next, next, next on Eastern Border, by the way, I'm interviewing a Lithuanian hi- Soviet historian, so I'm gonna have an academical perspective from a different Soviet country, because I've been talking from my Latvian perspective, but I'm getting a Lithuanian who's also an academical historian of the Soviet era, so that's gonna be amazing too. Oh, cool. Yeah. So we'll be doing that as well, and it, uh, we'll be seeing
2: you around then. And until then. We are the Eastern Border Slash the Lesser Bonapartes. I am Glenn, and with me as always is Christophs, and with just by himself sometimes is Christophs.
0: <clears throat> I think I think the proper word is the greater Bolsheviks, comrade. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we'll see you next time.
1: This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits.